I'm Deborah Ishihara, and this is Talking Work. We've just launched a report on the ageing workforce. The gradual ageing of the global population is a known phenomenon, but we decided to conduct a survey to find out how this might be starting to impact workforces across the world. Today, I have James Davis with me from our UK law firm to talk through what we found. Welcome to Talking Work, the employment law podcast by Use Laboris. In each episode, we invite a different guest to discuss what's happening in the world of work. If you're an HR professional of any kind, this podcast is for you. Hello, James. Nice to have you here. Now, can you explain to us, first of all, what we know about what's driving the ageing of populations and workforces around the world? Thank you, Deborah. It's great to be uh, talking to you again. Um, Well, there are various drivers behind the ageing populations and ageing workforces that we are experiencing. It's also crucial to note that while the population and workforce are aging in both developed and developing nations, the demographic shift is particularly pronounced in wealthier countries. And I think in these wealthier countries, there are really two forces that are uh, driving the aging population and consequently these aging workforces. Firstly, life expectancy. Um, This is increasing. And in the wealthier nations, it's generally increased by about three years since the beginning of the 21st century. Japan is the country in which we are seeing the highest life expectancy at the moment at around 84 and a half years. By way of example, France is about 82.3, the UK 80.7 and the US 79.1. Globally, life expectancy is now around 63.7 years. So all things being equal, increasing life expectancy results in an aging population. However, this aging population is made more pronounced in many countries by low fertility rates. A country needs 2.1 births per woman to maintain the stable population. I've never really understood why it's 2.1 and not 2, but it is 2.1. In France today, for example, the rate's 1.8, the US 1.7, the UK 1.6, Japan 1.3. And most dramatically of all, in Korea, only 0.8 babies are being born for each woman. And you can see how these reduced fertility rates coupled um, with longer life expectancy are resulting in aging populations and aging workforces. In sub-Saharan Africa, the picture is a a bit different. Life expectancy is uh, growing and indeed growing at quite a um, more, uh, quite a faster rate than it is in uh, wealthier countries. So whilst, as I said, in the um, uh, wealthier countries, it tends to have gone up by about three years since 2000. It's gone up by about 10 years over the same period in sub-Saharan Africa. But fertility rates are much, much higher. Uh, I've just said how they are below the level, all other things being equal, that are needed to maintain a uh, a stable uh, population size in uh, in many of the uh, wealthier countries. But in sub-Saharan Africa, the average is about 4.6 births per woman on average. And in some countries, it's over six. And it's quite easy to see how that's going to lead to younger populations and high growth in population numbers. And one of the things I think is uh, quite um, startling is uh, today, Nigeria has over 100 million 
people less than the states, 61% of the America's population. But by 2050, it's projected to have caught up with the US and to become the world's third most populous nation. So particularly about the ageing population, what can countries um, really do to deal with this, James? So um, I, I think it goes without saying a shrinking working age population is, to put it mildly, hugely problematic. Um, perhaps the most obvious example of uh, a step that can be taken to tackle a shrinking population is immigration. Uh, take the UK, um, for example. The UK is uh, projected uh, to, um, well, is only projected not to decrease in population over the next decades because uh, the data is predicated on the basis of net migration of um, 200,000 Per year. It's much higher. Anybody who's been uh, following the news in the UK recently, uh, there's quite um, a political issue about the uh, levels of net migration, about 750,000 at the moment. Um, but countries like Japan and Korea, which probably um, face the most significant um, uh, uh, pressures from shrinking populations, have traditionally had very low net migration levels. Um, and it's, to put it mildly, a political challenge uh, in many countries to see migration uh, as the answer to uh, shrinking populations. By um, So in, in um, Korea, for example, I think Korea is a fascinating uh, example of the challenges we're all going to be facing the years ahead. Um, by 2050, 44% of the population is predicted to be over the age of 65. And in Japan, um, the uh, current predictions suggest that the population will decline by almost 20% uh, by 2050. Those are really, really significant um, demographic shifts. But if migration is not going to be the answer to all this, James, what else can countries be doing? Have more babies? Um, no, but seriously, um, that there are there are um, initiatives in some countries to try to address uh, low fertility rates and shrinking populations by encouraging um, the population to have more babies. But you know, even the, if this um, was an overnight success, and it's not going to be, um, it would be twenty years uh, before this impacted on the workforce. I think more practically, you can look at whether or not you can increase the numbers of working age people um, who are in work. I mean, using the UK as an example, uh, at the moment, unemployment rates are, are uh, historic, by historic standards, very low. But we have 9 million people in the UK of working age who are economically inactive. That's people who are not in work or seeking work. That's more than one in five of the working age population who, uh, who are economically inactive. And there's just now beginning to be a political recognition in the UK that that's something that needs to be addressed. Now, it's quite interesting to look at why people are economically inactive when of working age. And um, a, a, a material proportion of them, it's due to caring responsibilities. But the numbers who are not working because of caring responsibilities, responsibilities have been going down consistently over uh, past decades. The the most notable feature of the UK is the very significant numbers, 2.6 million people who are of working age but not in work uh, due to long-term health issues. And I think there's just now, as I say, beginning to be a 
recognition that this is seriously uh, impacting upon the, um, the, the 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 economy and the um the, the future of the country and you know part of this is uh, due down to the um neglect which the british healthcare system has been uh, subjected to over the last dozen or so years um and i, I actually think that um the impact of long covid is um perhaps underestimated as having had an impact on the numbers of economically inactive people due to long-term ill health. Mm, those sound like um, very serious social concerns, James. Um, just to make sure we're all clear, when when you talked a little bit earlier about people of working age, what what, what did you mean exactly? Well, that's a good point, Deborah. Um, so when we talk about people of working age, we are talking about people who are aged between 16 and 64. But of course, the working age doesn't have to be 16 to 64 and that's just the uh, uh, the, the, the the traditional um, age span um, which are used to describe people of working age based on historic um, retirement ages. Now you can look at this at both ends. Um, so 2.3 million people in the UK for example are full-time students and um, you know, I think that there's going to be uh, pressure with the uh, need to reskill people for the to adapt to the uh, changing world of work um, for uh, people to to remain in um, in employment and study and train etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but looking at the older age, um, as I mentioned before, we've got increasing life expectancy, and we have longer uh, healthy lives. So um, the definition of a healthy when you look at the definition of a healthy life you can see that on average, there is a consistent uh, period of 10 years where on average, people are not living healthy lives. So as life expectancy increases, the, the, the proportion of the number of years of non-healthy um, life seems to remain reasonably stable. So as life expectancy increases, healthy life ex expectancy increases, and you can see that um, one of the answers that is needed is to extend the period which uh, over which people work mm. so in other words it's not just about working beyond 65 it's about it's about encouraging older workers to remain in work can you tell us something more about this james that's exactly right deborah so extending the um because uh, we're talking about averages all the time so uh extending the working life of people is both um extending the uh, age at which people retire, but also encouraging um, more people, more older workers to remain in work and not leave the workforce um, uh, uh, early. And th th there was a lot of talk, I'm sure, sure you, you might remember, of the great retirement during uh, COVID. And uh, a feature that was um, highlighted where it was said that uh, more and more people were retiring early. They were perhaps experiencing the benefits of um, the reduced pressures of um, uh, leaving the workforce early and that that was encouraging um, more and more uh, premature retirements. But actually, um, if, you, if you look at the data, it doesn't really support that. And 
at least in the UK, the number of people retiring early has come down very slightly over the last decade. So we, we haven't actually seen this, this, this great retirement that people were, t- uh, were talking about. Mm, I suppose if you look over a whole decade, maybe that's um, the trend is slightly different. Um, so what sort of things are individual employers doing to encourage workers to work later on in life? Yes, that's good. I mean, you mentioned the survey um, that uh, Yusla Boris has uh, recently published. And I, I, I think that it's really, I mean, I encourage people to to have a read of that. It's really super. Uh, and there's a um, uh, comment on that in that survey. But by way of example, you know, for example, UK and Ireland, uh, where I've got much more um, personal experience, there's more support for older workers, uh, support for those going through menopause at work, grandparent leave. And and one that um, actually impacts upon me personally is flexible work for those caring for older relatives. And I know that if I didn't have the flexibility that I have, um, it would be much more difficult for me to continue in work as a 61-year-old because of caring responsibilities for older relatives. Now, uh, OECD has highlighted a range of other good employment practices for attracting and retaining older workers. And these include returner or re-entry programs, midlife career reviews, phased retirement. I think workplace health screening is a valuable benefit in many countries, mentoring, reverse mentoring. There's a whole host of um, uh, practices that um, uh, employers are are looking at in order to um, encourage encourage people to work longer uh, and retire later. Um, you know, going back to the report that I, I, I mentioned, in several countries, you know, we can see, you know, the emergence of recruitment uh, consultancies uh, focused particularly on older workers. I mean, um, Netherlands uh, is, is an example where we see that. And um, I think it's also worth noting that many of the employment practices that are particularly highly valued by older workers are also benefit beneficial to everybody. Flexible working is a uh, an example for that, and I think you know more and more people are seeing the flexibility as being important to um, to them and important to deciding uh, where they're going to work. And employers have to respond to those challenges, otherwise they're going to lose the best people. Um, there's the challenge in how to design workplaces that appeal to uh, multiple generations, and indeed we probably haven't got time to go into it today, but there's the increasing attention being paid to managing intergenerational workforces and the different values and priorities of those different generations and uh, how to seek to, to, to manage and mitigate the, the tensions that can arise in multi-generational workforces. That's all really interesting stuff, actually. We need to have a deep dive into some of that, as you say. Um, But what about the support um, different governments uh, in different countries offer to older people or to employers to help people continue working? What can you tell us about that? So, So again, I think quite a lot of it is about flexibility and not having regimes that are too rigid. So one development that we're seeing in many countries um, at the moment is the flexibility to work and receive a pension at the same time. That enables people um, perhaps to uh, retire gradually, um, but remain in the workforce longer. Uh, You're also seeing in some countries uh, specific financial support to encourage countries to employ older workers. Um, Australia, Netherlands are are good examples of countries where specific financial support is available to encourage uh, employers to continue employing older older people. 
Mm. And can you tell us something about developments with pensions, James? Yes, um, it, it's it's pretty uh, straightforward to see that uh, a, a growing post-retirement population coupled with a shrinking working population is going to place probably impossible strains on an economy and something has to give. Um, yeah, and, and, and pensions are not straightforward to compare across the world, but there are a couple of things that do seem to be happening. One of them is that retirement ages and the age at which people qualify for state pensions seem to be rising. What can you tell us about all this, James? Well, I think you know, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that if people are living longer, healthy lives and you know something has to give. And one of the things that is going to give is the age at which people become entitled to state pensions. It's just going to be totally unaffordable for a rapidly increasing, as I say, Korea, 44 percent of the people population over 65 by 2050. It's just going to be impossible for um the, uh, the 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 country to afford um, pensions um, with people um, taking pensions at the ages at which they do now. And you know, examples: Australia is increasing it to 67, Argentina to 70, Poland 65, Belgium rising gradually to 67. Similarly, the UK gradually gradually rising to 67. And perhaps most um, notably, we saw. Um, the uh, demonstrations in France when the French government um, were introducing a rise in pension ages to 64, which uh, by international comparisons is pretty modest uh, by 2027. So, you know, politics um, plays an important role in driving these uh, changes which are going to be necessary to meet these um, shifting demographics. It's not going to be straightforward for countries. Several countries are overhauling their um, uh, pension regimes by requiring higher contributions during working years. Of course, if you're going to have longer retired drawing a pension, there needs to be more money in the pot. Brazil, Australia are examples. Um, and uh, you know, Ireland is a, another example where um, people are going to have to pay more into the pension pot in order to be able to fund retirement for longer periods. Yeah. So turning now to what employers are doing, what pension benefit schemes do employers tend to offer? It, do, it does vary quite a lot from country to country. Um, and I think the, you know, the, that some countries, um, this is not seen so much as a responsibility of the employer because the pensions and reasonably generous pensions sometimes are provided exclusively um, or to, 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 to a very significant extent by the state or by mandated contributions. But in others, um, the uh, pension benefits provided by the employers um, can pay a much more um, significant role. The UK is an example of that. Um, and, you know, we can go looking back at this, the Yus Laboris uh, survey. There's a lot of interesting information about that. And one of the um, uh, features is, uh, I think there's a, 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 which comes out of the survey as well, is there's a lack of um, understanding amongst uh, people of working age about pensions and funding retirement. And I think another thing that employers uh, can do is ensure that there's much better um, education and support to people long before they are looking to draw pensions about uh, how pensions work and what they might need to do in order to fund uh, a, a, a retirement along the lines they might be expecting. 
Yes, indeed. Um, well, all that was really interesting. Thank you so much, James, for coming on the on the podcast. Is as always, it's great to talk to you. There's a link to our aging workforce report in the notes to this episode, and we've put James's details in the notes too, along with mine. You're always welcome to contact me on anything to do with employment law, and I'll answer your query. Or if you need an expert in a particular country, say I'll put you in touch with the right person. Do browse around our website, by the way. There's loads of information there on all sorts of employment-related topics at usetheboris.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again. That's it for this episode of Talking Work. But we'll be back very soon with more insights from our guests from around the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can also visit usaboris.com to access all our content, resources and tools.